All right, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11, we'll be looking at verses 21 through 45 this morning. It can be found on page 749 in the Pew Bible. 749 in the Pew Bible. Daniel 11, 21 through 45. Verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for the plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work with his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him and He shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he shall, and shall speak astonish, astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of, his, instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, 
but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we turn to this passage this morning, would you turn our hearts to you? Would you open our minds to receive it? We recognize that the difficulty, even in reading this passage, some of the difficult things that are here. So I pray that you would speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. I read an article this week. It's from 2021. It said this concerning the persecution of Christians. Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. And every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned. Another five are abducted. Well, as I looked into this further, the, the numbers this past year are very similar. And in certain areas, they're, they're even higher than that. A recent report says that attacks on churches and Christian properties skyrocketed in 2023. Though we know that persecution exists in other parts of the world, I was, I was actually surprised by these numbers, or at least, the, at least what it does for me, and perhaps for you, is, with these amounts as mentioned, is it brings more clarity, right? it brings concreteness to the existence of the suffering of God's people throughout the world. We live in a privileged place. Do you realize that? We live in a privileged place. Our suffering might not look like those things here in the U.S. And so we might be tempted to think that our situation isn't very bad, right? It, it's, it must be like this in general in other parts of the world. It's just not the case. God's people suffer persecution, trials, tribulation in every generation. And we should not be surprised if it intensifies here and in the future. It was no different for God's people throughout the centuries as they move closer and closer to the first arrival of Jesus. It was no different for Jesus' disciples, for the early church, and really for us, right? Persecution and suffering are part of the experience of God's people in this broken and fallen world. And that's what I want to draw your attention to this morning. So as we continue, right, we're continuing this vision to given to Daniel concerning what was future for him. We will encounter that the reality of suffering and persecution of God's people will see this, and then we should discover how we should respond to it as well. And that's what I want us to look at. So three headings for you this morning, and then we'll apply it at the end. So first, the rebellious king's actions. The rebellious king's actions. As we get closer to spring, right, it's a beautiful day outside. It's pretty amazing. Tomorrow's going to be just as nice, if not nicer. As we get closer to spring and we'll start to see leaves on the trees and fruit on the trees, we recognize, as Jesus would say to his disciples, 
that a tree is known by its fruit. A tree is known by its fruit. The fruit reveals what kind of tree it really is. Jesus used this illustration to, to show that one's actions reveal the character of a man. Our behavior display and demonstrates what is in our hearts. One's conduct is the evidence of one's character. Well, what we discover this morning is the rebellious nature of this new king. And it is evident in his actions. We see the actions, the character, and the outcome of those who fail to submit to God as their king. And this king who chooses to rebel against God and magnify himself, he, he persecutes the people of God. Faithful believers suffer at the hands of those who are opposed to God. And that's what we see here in this first section. In verses 21 through 35, we're introduced to another king. Through the first 20 verses, the angel has introduced this vision, right, of the reality of this conflict, this, this earthly conflict that takes place. There's conflicts between kings and, and kingdoms. He, he zooms in specifically on, on the conflict between the king of the north and the king of the south. Since Israel was, was sandwiched right in between, uh, in the middle of these nations, right, Syria, with Syria and the Seleucid dynasty in the north, and then Egypt and the Ptolemaic dynasty of, uh, in the south. They're coming out of this Greek empire of Alexander the Great. So here's this constant battle. It's back and forth, right? Dominance by the king of the south, and, and then victory by the king of the north. Political alliances are made through marriage. Confusion and division within Israel over which side to take. And the king of the north, he takes over this glorious land of Israel. Now in the first 20 verses, several hundred years have, have passed and have been described in this conflict. And it's not done. Emerging on the scene now is a guy named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He would reign from 175 to 164 B.C. He was briefly mentioned in chapter 8 and identified as the little horn. And now we get a, a further description of this king who came from the Seleucid Greek Empire, the, the king of the north, okay? So, so we're going to learn here of his actions in verses 21 through 35. I'm, I'm not going to read it all, all right? I read it all as we started. I'm not going to read every verse here, but notice how he's first described in verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So after a brief reign of the king of the south or of the king of the north, there arises without a warning a contemptible person, a despised person, an evil and wicked man who he's not directly in line for royal succession. When we look back at history, we recognize that this is Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. He took this position through intrigue and scheming and, and flattery. After coming to power, we see his ability to conquer. Armies were swept away and, and broken before him, including the Jewish high priest. He acted deceitfully and he forms these alliances where they were, when they were convenient, and then he broke those that weren't. In verses 25 through 28, we learn of his first invasion of Egypt and his victory over them, right? He would return to his land with great wealth. 
On his way, he would march through Israel and bring devastation upon it. His rebellious actions are continued to be described in verses 29 and 30. He invades Egypt again, but this time he's not successful. Ships of Kittim, Rome, come against him as well. They had arrived at the request of Egypt. The Romans were rising, they're the rising power in that day that they got involved in this, in this conflict. A Roman leader confronted Antiochus and told him to leave Egypt or risk war with Rome. Scholars observe that this Roman general, here's what this one scholar says, how he describes it. This Roman general, he drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus, insisting that he had to agree to withdraw from Egypt before he left the circle. Right? So just imagine this. He draws a circle in the sand. Before you leave this circle, you must decide what you are going to do. Antiochus, he was no stranger to the power of Rome, having spent his childhood in Rome as a political hostage. Humiliated, he's forced to withdraw. On his return back to his homeland, he storms into Jerusalem filled with rage. Now, now look with me at the middle of verse 30 through 31. Look what he does on his way back, right? So he's down in Egypt. He's heading back home. After being humiliated, he's filled with rage. And he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So filled with rage, he takes action against God's people. He, he favors those who abandon the covenant. He favors those who turn away from God. He then desecrates the temple and abolishes the regular sacrifices, and he sets up the abomination of desolation. On December 6th, 167 BC, he sets up a pagan altar for the Greek god Zeus above the altar of burnt offerings, and he demands that it be worshipped. And then 10 days later, sacrifices, including pigs, were offered on the altar. This was an abomination to the Jews. And as a result, the temple's desecrated, right? It, it, it became, becomes desolate and, and empty, he brought severe persecution on the Jewish people during this three, little over three-year time period. According to verse 32, decisions then had to be made within Israel on who they would stand with. Right? So you see this persecution happening. They've got to decide what they're going to do. Notice verses 32 through 35. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they might be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. Some would be seduced and give in and turn away from God. 
partly due to flattery, right, and promises that are made that would entice people to support him and his policies, but also due to fear, right? So they compromise. That's what you have on the one hand. On the other hand, those who knew God and had a relationship with God, they would stand firm and take action. And those who were wise, those who stayed true to God during this time of horrendous persecution, they would instruct others concerning the truth. But because of their faithfulness to God, many of them were killed by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. It's one of the worst times ever in the history of Israel. So significant and catastrophic is, was this event that Jesus would allude to it in the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 when speaking of the coming destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Well, during this time of oppression and persecution, those who were faithful to God, they receive a little help. What was that little help? There were some who stood firm in Israel. This led to the Maccabean Revolt. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. The Maccabean Revolt in which they defeated him, and as a result, in 164 B.C., the temple then was rededicated to God. This is celebrated today in the Jewish, Jewish religion today. It's known as Hanukkah. You guys ever heard of Hanukkah? Right? That's what they're celebrating, this rededication of the temple and the Maccabean Revolt. Well, the king's actions here against God's people, it would reveal his character, right? It would reveal not only his, but also those who experience the suffering that comes from him. So let's consider now the king's character, right? Second point is this, the rebellious king's character in verses 36 through 39. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts." He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Well, as we transition to verse 36, there's debate over who this refers to. I just want to make you aware of this, just so, you're, so you know. But in this vision, the question is this. Did the angel, did the angel switch to a different king? Or is he still referring to Antiochus? Does he jump into this far distant future? Or is he simply recapping the previous king and showing his character and outcome in greater detail? Or is it some combination of both? In which Antiochus, he becomes a pattern or type or example of a future rebellious leader which we see, we actually see this played out not only in Titus in 67 to 70 AD with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but even in a future Antichrist who will set himself up and oppose God and his people. Whatever the case may be, however you take it, there are difficulties with every viewpoint. It's not as clear-cut as we might think or hope. 
Perhaps it's best left to uh, left ambiguous. Perhaps he's leaving it so that we would see multiple fulfillments. If you look down the road, right? Look down the road, miles down the road, right? See, I see this out my window in my office. Look down and you see the trees, right? Miles down the road. They appear right next to each other, don't they? So you looked in the far distance, whether you're looking at mountains or you're looking at trees, they appear right next to each other. But then as you get closer, there's actually distance between them. Well, predictive prophecy can be the same way with fulfillments that are near and far. And what we observe here it isn't quite as clear as we'd like it to be. Okay, So what I want to do here, though, as we see certain characteristics, we see certain traits that characterize this king. And that's what I want to highlight for you in this point. And that's what the author is emphasizing here as well. So regardless of who this person is or who we identify him to be, there are patterns and examples of what this ungodly king does and what antichrists do and portray. So what are those characteristics? Verse 36, the king does as he pleases, right? He does what he desires and wills. This is the same way that Alexander the Great was described in verse 3 and the way Antiochus has been described in verse 16. He will do as he wills. The rebellious king is self-centered. He exalts himself and he magnifies himself above every god. We know of Antiochus IV that he gave himself the title Epiphanes. Do you know what Epiphanes means? So he's Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which, which means God manifest or glorious one. So that's what he's titling himself. He exalts himself over God and over every so-called God. He speaks outrageous, blasphemous things against God and He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. So here's this king, right? Just imagine this picture. Here's a king that is convinced that he can function well without God. And for a time, he appears to do so. He's having earthly success due to his personality, due to his charisma, his intelligence, his deceitful character, and his political power. In verse 37, we continue to see the emphasis on the fact that he magnifies himself. He doesn't show any regard to the God of his fathers. No concern. No concern for what his ancestors believed or even had taught him. No concern for God or for for the Messiah. According to verse 38, he shall honor the God of fortresses. He won't worship the God of his ancestors, instead, he's going to honor military power and, and might. He will make the conquering of fortresses his God. He shall seek to destroy all who, who challenge him and honor those who make much of him. Those who give them their allegiance, those who give him their allegiance will be rewarded. He grants them leadership positions and a distribution of lands. So here are the characteristic traits. Here's these character traits. Self-centered, self-exalting, self-seeking. He speaks blasphemous words, opposed to God and Christ, 
rejects those who are against him and rewards those who praise him. His allegiance is ultimately to himself. But for whatever reason, people are attracted to him. This appears attractive to people. Even confusing. And people buy into the lie and the deceit and they compromise. Third, now third. What's the outcome? What's the outcome going to be? The rebellious king's outcome. If you've been reading along in, our, in the Bible plan I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, right? We're working through the Gospel of John. Tomorrow we arrive at John 15. John 15, and then in, in that chapter, uh, I looked ahead. Well, I, I know what's coming, but in John 15, here's what we read. I am the vine. Jesus is speaking. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And then he says this in John 15, 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. There are consequences for people's actions. The outcome for the one who remains opposed to God, for the one who does not submit to Christ as king and does not trust in him alone to save them from their sins, is destruction. That's the consequence of this rebellious king, whether it refers to Antiochus or Antichrist. Their end will be destruction. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4 says this, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The, lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will what? Will kill by the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The end is destruction for those who do not submit to Christ as king. In these final verses of chapter 11, we encounter the activities and the outcome of this rebellious king. There's many parallels here to Antiochus and what's been stated before, which is why it's possible and even likely that he's referring to the same king that he mentioned in 21 through 35. Notice verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. The time of the end. This was the phrase that was used in verse 27 and 35. It refers to this time of this period of persecution against God's people that would lead to the destruction of many. The king of the south here is mentioned again. He attacks him. He attacks the king of the north. The king of the north, again, continues to move forward. He passes through the glorious land, this land of Israel, specifically Jerusalem. Many died as a result. And then the king's progress continues as he plunders Egypt again in verses 42 and 43. However, news spreads of this. He's alarmed by it. Right Here's a parallel to the second visit to Egypt, in verse 30. He's alarmed by the, those from the north and the east. As a result, with great fury, he storms off and destroys many. 
At the beginning of verse 45, he continues this onslaught of God's people. He's bent on destroying the people of God. Then look at verse 45. I just want to draw your attention to the last part of verse 45. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. His rage and fury, it would come to an end. He will die and ultimately be destroyed by, for his actions. That's the outcome of this rebellious one who continues to exalt himself and stand in opposition to Jesus Christ and his people. God considers it just to, apply with, to repay with affliction those who afflict his people when Christ comes on the last day. There are consequences. There are consequences for the actions of the rebellious king, for the Antichrist who exalt himself over God. Now, I said a lot, right? You got a lot of history there. How do we apply this? How do we apply this to our lives? How do we respond to this sort of persecution or to trials and suffering that we face or may face? Number one, persevere. Persevere through trials because God uses it to refine us and purify us. In verse 35, we read this, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they might be, what? Refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So what's going on here? Why would God allow this suffering and persecution of his people? Though the actions committed by Antiochus would lead to great suffering and persecution for God's people, God would actually use it as part of this refining, purifying, and cleansing process. Some who claimed to be God's people would fall away. They weren't faithful. They weren't genuine believers. They they gave in. Others would be empowered and strengthened to teach and instruct on the truth. And still others would actually be killed for their faith. They would fall by the sword. God uses suffering and persecution and trials and tribulation to refine us and purify us. 1 Peter 1 says that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have hope in suffering. We have hope of eternal life. And because of that, we can persevere through trials. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering is part of the Christian life. Peter would say in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised when it comes as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering for our faith is not because we did something wrong. Well, I'm suffering because I disobeyed God. No, no. Well, perhaps, but no, not for our faith, right? Suffering, persecution, tribulation, is intended to refine us and purify us and display the worth and preciousness of our faith as we persevere through it. 
How do you respond when you face trials of many kinds? Do you persevere? Do you become discouraged? Oh, the suffering is awful. I can't keep going. Do you turn away from God for comfort and ease? Easy solution. If I just turn away from the Lord, my life will be more comfortable. Do you view it as an opportunity for God to refine you and purify you? Suffering trials are meant to make us more like Jesus, who suffered in every way, yet without sin. He suffered for us by dying in our place. And through his suffering, he continued to entrust himself to him, to God who judges justly. When you read about the life of Jesus in the Gospels, right? Just, uh, I would encourage you, even if you haven't been reading through the Gospels, read through the Gospels. Time and time again, he is under constant pressure and opposition and threats and danger, and yet he trusted in God's perfect plan. He endured suffering for you and for me, so that we might not suffer eternally. So let's persevere through trials and allow God to refine us and purify us and make us more like Jesus. Now, what would enable that to happen? What would enable, what would enable us to respond to persecution and trials in this way? Number two, know God. Stand firm in him and take action. Know God, stand firm in him and take action. If, if we know that suffering exists and that God used it to refine us and purify us, to make us more like Jesus, then seek to know God. Stand firm in him and take action. Verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Those who know their God will stand firm and take action. Those who know their God will be strong and resist him, and they will do great things for God. Those who know their God won't compromise. They won't be seduced with flattery. If we are going to persevere through suffering, right? You're like, well, I'm not really suffering that much right now. It's coming. If we are going to persevere through suffering and stand firm in Christ through it, we must know God and continue to pursue a relationship with him. We must give our lives to him. We must plant ourselves firmly in Christ and be rooted in him. Well, think about that. Think about the reality of being rooted in Christ so that when the storms come, the pressures, the heat, the refining process, the, the waves that crash hard upon us, whatever trial it might be, we remain. And we continue to hold fast to Jesus. So, before that day comes, persecution and trials will come. Before that day comes, press firmly in to Jesus. 
get more plugged into him before it comes. In that way, you'll be more prepared to weather the storm. Number three, lastly, remember, God wins in the end. God wins in the end. It's not too often that we get to know the outcome of games before they happen. It's not too often. It's not too often that we get to know the outcome of wars before they happen and while they're happening, right? Strange things can happen, right? But what we recognize here this morning is that because of Jesus, the victory is won. Jesus has overcome The outcome is sure and certain. God wins in the end. Make sure you're on God's side. Are you on the winning team? We're not winning because of us. We're winning because of Jesus. We get to win because of Jesus. We see it over and over in this passage, at the appointed time, at the appointed time, until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. He shall come to his end with none to help him. God is in control. He raises up kings and brings them to ruin. One writer, one writer, I found this interesting. Never thought about this. He said that we often hear the phrase, all good things come to an end. You've heard that before, perhaps. All good things come to an end. Well, he adds and observed, so it is with all bad things. All bad things come to an end. The good news is that God wins in the end. Whatever sort of trial or, or tribulation or opposition or persecution we face, we have hope. A day is coming when God will ultimately and finally rescue us from the presence of sin, suffering, and death. A day is coming when God will resurrect our bodies. Right? You think about all those that were killed that I mentioned every day for their faith in Christ. A day is coming when God will resurrect our bodies to be like Christ's glorious body. In the meantime, let's live for him with great hope Because God wins in the end. He will destroy this rebellious king. He will destroy antichrists who cause great persecution and suffering on Christ's church. Let's hold fast to that hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have hope. We have hope because of you. It's nothing that we have done. It's nothing in us that would bring about victory. It's all because of you and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. As he suffered for us, died for us, and rose to life for us. So those who suffer for him in this present life those who seek to live for him in this present life will rise again. For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. We look forward to that day. We know that you will 
keep us and watch over us and protect us and refine our faith through it. Help us cling to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.